0: Well last week we began a series looking at the Incarnation, uh, that the wonder that in Christ Jesus God has become flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. We spoke then of the promise of the Incarnation as we look through the prophetic words uh, of Isaiah chapter 7. And this morning our focus is on the necessity of the Incarnation. Why? Why? Was it needed? Why did the eternal son of God need to take on human nature? The well-known author C.S. Lewis once wrote these words. He said, In the Christian story, God descends to re-ascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Jesus Christ did not come into this world merely to show us an example of how to live the best life possible. He didn't come to show us how to live a purpose-driven life. No, he came to save. He came on a divine rescue mission. He came to redeem fallen humanity out of slavery to sin and death and to restore his people into fellowship with God. He is the only way to salvation for he alone is truly God and truly man. And to understand the necessity of the incarnation we're going to look at a passage today from the book of Hebrews. Uh, There are many passages in scripture which uh, illuminate our minds to the reason and the, the necessity of the incarnation but we're going to settle here in hebrews we don't know who wrote hebrews but when the early church studied its words it became clear that it was ultimately from divine inspiration so please turn with me in your bibles to hebrews chapter 2 we're going to read from verse 5 to 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honour, This is a a wonderful passage and uh, in these words we find four reasons uh, given for the necessity of the Incarnation. And number one is that the Incarnation is necessary to bring fulfilment to God's plans for humanity. It is necessary to bring fulfilment to God's plans for humanity. In verses 5 to 9, the writer begins his discussion with an exposition of Psalm 8. In its original context, uh, the psalm described God's creational purposes for man. Now, these purposes, they don't seem to be the reality that we experience today. Of course, that is as a result of Adam and Eve's fall into sin. Yet God's design and plan, it hasn't changed. And so in sending his son... To be born of a woman, his plans for humanity will be fulfilled. Now, verse 5 begins with the word for. And it means that what comes next is the reason or the cause for something that has just been stated. And if we look to the previous verses, we quickly see that in chapter 2 and verse 1, the sentence begins, Therefore which means that this too is part of a wider discussion. Verses 1 to 4 are the result or the consequence of what has been just stated before this. So to get our bearings fully, and because it isn't that far of a journey back, let's just go back to chapter 1 and verse 1. And let me read the first four verses. Long ago... After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. So Hebrews opens with this magnificent statement about the supremacy of God's son. In him, the greatest, the fullest the clearest revelation of god has been made god's son is supreme over the prophets of old and he is supreme even over the angels god's son not only revealed god in being the exact imprint of his nature but through his atoning death and his bodily resurrection he now reigns above all as lord he is the sovereign one Now, one of the major purposes of the book of Hebrews is to show that God's son is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows that came before. The writer is specifically writing to the Hebrews, uh, the Jews, uh, and he is saying that there is no need to hang on to the past. The writer calls them to hang on to the son because he is the fulfilment of all that has been stated before, and he is better. The series of quotes from the Old Testament throughout the rest of chapter 1 show this to be true, and show that everything in the Old Testament was pointing towards the Son. And the result of this, that therefore, in chapter 2 and verse 1, is a warning not to neglect the message of salvation concerning God's Son. We read this. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received the just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, several Old Testament scriptures imply that it was actually through the angels that God delivered the law to the people of Israel. And the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that since this message of old was reliable and true, how much more so that which came from God's Son, the Lord, and this message that was further proclaimed by the apostles. And... Uh, The miracles that accompanied the message given by the Lord and the apostles further attest to its veracity and its genuineness and its authority. So God's son is better than the angels. Therefore we are called to believe in him and in his message. In chapter 2, verse 5, the beginning of our passage for today the writer returns to his reasoning for why we should believe in the son and his message why because he is better than the angels verse five for it was not to angels that god subjected the world to come of which we are speaking who is the one with authority the one whom god has subjected the world to come It is God's son. It is the one who fulfills God's plans for humanity. This world has now been corrupted by sin. Romans 8.22 reads, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So by the work of God's son, creation itself will be redeemed. It will be resurrected and there will be a new heaven and new earth. But notice the language here. It is past tense. God has subjected the world to come under the sun. It has already happened. And yet we still await its consummation, its completion. It's already, but it's not yet. We can trust that the full resurrection of this world will take place because it already has in a sense all that needed to happen in the person and the work of christ has taken place but we await its fulfillment in god's perfect timing and this is laid out for us in the following verses the writer begins in verse 6 it has been testified somewhere well that's strong language there. That's pretty vague, isn't it? Why is he so non-specific about where he's quoting from? It's been testified somewhere. Well, first, Psalm 8 is so well known that it doesn't need to be specified. Everyone knows the words of Psalm 8. Second, it shows that it doesn't matter where it is in Scripture, for all Scripture is God-breathed, and authoritative if it's in the bible we need to pay attention to it for our understanding though the following words are quoted specifically from psalm 8 verses 4 to 6 let me read those again what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. These words are written in awe and wonder of God for his work in creating humanity and in his purposes for them as stewards, caretakers of his wider creation. Reflects back on the words of Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This right here is the reason why every single person is worthy of dignity and respect even though all humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. While that image may be marred by sin, every single human is still made in the image and likeness of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews offers his own commentary on the words from Psalm 8, and we read in verse 8 when he states, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. It makes clear that the dominion and authority that Adam and Eve were first endowed with, he uh, left nothing outside of his control. It means that they had authority over everything on the earth. They were truly God's stewards, his overseers. But of course, they failed in the one restriction which showed that they were stewards and that they were not the ultimate authority. They ate the fruit. It is for this reason that the writer of Hebrews explains, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Humanity does not have dominion and rule over God's creation. There is fear. There is death. When people say, I don't believe in God because of all the suffering in the world, a passage like this provides a strong response The reason for suffering in this world is humanity's rebellion against God. And so God's plan for humanity was for them to have dominion over his creation. But we must understand that while this is not evident at this moment, the plan hasn't changed. This is still the plan. But for these words of Psalm 8 to be true, something needed to happen. And it happened in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And here is the first mention of the Son of God's name. It is Jesus. God, the Son, the eternal Word, took on human flesh. He came to fulfill those words of the psalmist. But this condescension, this coming down, this being made lower than the angels was for a little while. For while he was lowered, he is now crowned with glory and honor. He reigns. He fulfilled God's plans for humanity to have dominion. The Lord reigns. But how did this come about? Because he suffered death. His path to glory was through a bloodied cross. And this was not so that he alone might be glorified. By the grace of God, it was through Jesus' suffering and glorification that he might taste death for everyone. Now, the week after Christmas, we're going to spend an entire message looking at the mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus is truly God and truly human. Uh, but for the moment, let me just say simply that the scriptures teach Jesus is one person with two natures, divine and human now when the writer of hebrews declares that jesus took on flesh that he might taste death for everyone he's not saying that god died for god cannot suffer and god cannot die he is unchangeable he is eternal when christ died it was his humanity that died and on the third day it was his humanity that was raised to life again The necessity of the incarnation is that God the Son took on flesh so that he could suffer and die. As one writer says, apart from the incarnation, the Son could not die because God, by definition, is immortal. Now this same writer, uh, Kevin DeYoung, he's a Presbyterian pastor in the US. He states further, and I quote, the incarnation is not a revelation of the eternal suffering of God, but rather the deepest expression of God's gracious character, whereby he chose in love to suffer as one of us. Our comfort in the midst of suffering is not that the Father suffered with the Son, nor that God continues to suffer with us. Our profound consolation is that moved by love God the Son, in perfect cooperation and agreement with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, laid aside his immunity to pain so that he might suffer for us as one of us. Now, as I said, we're going to look uh, more at these profound truths in the weeks to come, but what a wonder that Christ came in the flesh that he might taste death for everyone. And who is that everyone? The answer, of course, is all who would believe. In John 10, verses 14 to 15, Jesus made that clear when he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus... The eternal Son of God took on flesh so that he was truly God and truly man. He lived a holy life in obedience to God. He died a substitutionary death on the cross for the sins of his people. He was historically, physically, bodily, resurrected, imperishable. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns with all authority as Lord. And through repentance of sin and belief in him, sinful humans can experience the fulfillment of God's plans for humanity. We too can reign. Hear these words from the Apostle Paul uh, when he compares Adam and Christ. Romans 5.17 For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So that's the first reason for the necessity of the incarnation. It is to bring fulfillment to God's plans for humanity. Well, now secondly, the incarnation is necessary to bring fellowship between God and humanity. It's necessary for fellowship. That Jesus becomes fully human means that God has shared fully in humanity. He has truly become God with us. And how this comes about is explained by the writer of Hebrews in verses 10 to 13. But let me just read from verses 10 to 11 to begin with. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. God's purpose in Christ's incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension was to bring many sons and daughters to glory. That is taking them from misery to magnificence and god who does this is the one for whom and through whom everything exists this means that there is no other reasoning behind what happens than that god is sovereign and he brings his purposes to pass nothing creeps up on god nothing sideswipes god that he didn't see coming he is sovereign over all and while the sons and daughters are glorified, the one who enabled that to happen would also be brought to perfection through his suffering. Jesus' sacrifice would not end in death for himself, but in victory. And indeed, his victory is the first fruits of those who believe. Now, when it talks here about Jesus being made perfect, it's not in the sense that he was once sinful, but now is not. Only two chapters later, the writer says, chapter 4, verse 16, that Jesus was without sin. And not only did Jesus not sin throughout his whole life, he was not born with a sinful nature. He was not born under the consequences of original sin. And this is why the doctrine of the virgin birth is absolutely essential to Christian faith. It is a non-negotiable. Some try and assert that Jesus was born with a fallen nature like the rest of us uh, because without this, he would not be empathetic to our plight. We need someone who was right in the midst of it with us, they suggest. The problem with that, however, is that he couldn't save us then from our plight because he would be in the same plight as us and he would need someone to then save him now scripture affirms that jesus human nature was never at any stage fallen now what scripture doesn't elaborate on however is how that was possible we know that jesus was conceived by the holy spirit and through the person of mary but we might ask well how did he not take on original sin from mary if he's truly human Catholics would suggest that this is because Mary was born without sin as well. Uh, This is known as the Immaculate Conception. If you've heard that before and you thought it was about Jesus, it's not. It's about Mary. It suggests that she was born without sin as well. Now, aside from the fact that this teaching isn't mentioned in Scripture at all, Aside from the fact that this teaching was only affirmed as official Catholic doctrine as late as 1854, aside from these important facets, it simply runs into the same problem. Why didn't Mary receive sin from her parents? What scripture clearly affirms is that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived a holy child. Now there have been... Uh, suggestions that the consequence of original sin passed through the father's line, uh, or that it passes spiritually from one generation to another. But these are merely speculations. What we can clearly see from Scripture is that the eternal Son of God received a truly human nature by virtue of being born through a woman, but that the Holy Spirit ensured that Jesus' nature His human nature was free from the consequences of original sin. At this point, we simply say, God has told us what he has done, but in his great wisdom, he hasn't disclosed to us how he has done it. We are simply to believe. And believe in the wonderful truth that Christ Jesus was without sin. And we can see that even from the context here in chapter 2, that... Christ is not lacking in perfection. As verse 11 states, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Jesus is the one who sanctifies, who makes people holy, set apart to God and set apart to purity. And he can't make people holy unless he is holy. So, if Jesus being made perfect is not about his moral character then what does it refer to? It is about his becoming qualified to be our high priest. His qualification to mediate between sinful humanity and holy God. His perfect sacrifice on the cross makes him supremely and singularly qualified for that job. He truly is the only way to the Father. But it is not just his sacrifice as priestly mediator that brings fellowship between God and humanity. No, he can only be the perfect sacrifice and substitute because Jesus has fellowship with humanity in the incarnation. The eternal son can be our substitute because as truly God, he has also become truly man. He has become connected to the one source. He has become connected to human nature, such that while he is now of the family of humanity, believers can be made part of the family of God. And the quotes from the Old Testament passages from Psalm 22 and then Isaiah 8 show Jesus' solidarity with those whom he came to save. That is why he is not ashamed to call them Brothers. At the beginning of verse 10 and then again at verse 11, we see the word for, which helps us see the core reasoning for the incarnation. Why is Christ superior to angels? Because the one who is truly God has also become truly man, in order that we might have fellowship with God. He, Jesus, is the founder, the author, the prince of our salvation and so the incarnation is necessary to bring fellowship between god and humanity now thirdly the incarnation is necessary to bring freedom from god's punishment now if we thought we'd reached the center of the reasoning already it was simply building up to this point here the writer gets to the heart of the matter Why would the eternal son of God need to take on human nature to himself? Well, the answer to that question is in the form of another question. Why had humanity not fulfilled God's purposes for it? Because of sin. And with sin came a reversal of dominion. Fear of creation instead of gracious rule over it. And the greatest fear? Death and judgment. See, death is not a natural process. Death is is not inherent in humanity. Death is a punishment. Death is an enemy. Death is the result of Adam and Eve's disobedience to God. And we, as descendants, live in the consequences of this. We are born in sin and we choose to sin. And as such, unregenerate humanity is under God's punishment. So for God to glorify humanity, he must first redeem it and save it from sin and death. And of course, it is not to all humanity who will benefit from this, but those to whom receive Christ in faith, the elect from before all time. Now we can see this simply by the quote in verse 13 from Isaiah. I and the children God has given me. Regeneration is not a joint effort between God and humanity. It is solely the work of God. How can a spiritually dead person respond to God unless God first breathes new life into them? It can only be God who must deal with the problem of our sin. And it begins with the incarnation of his eternal son. So, we read in verses 14 to 15... Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It shows that we were slaves under fear, under evil authority. But while unregenerate hearts are under the dominion of the devil, it is not the devil to blame. Humanity is responsible for placing itself under that tyranny. In our Western world, we tend to focus far more on being individuals rather than being part of a wider community. But we cannot divorce ourselves from the community of humanity. We're all part of the human race. And as such, we are all faced with this problem. We all need a saviour. And moreover, the writer emphasises that we can't save ourselves. Humanity is in slavery and it needs divine intervention. An intervention which we see came through the incarnation of God the Son. He shared in our humanity so he could become the perfect substitute And by his death, he broke the power of sin and death and the devil. Scripture calls the devil the prince of the power of the air. But it's only a limited authority. Think of the book of Job, where Satan had to ask God's permission to approach and torment Job. Now, the devil is not the true authority. The devil is God's devil. The only sovereign is Yahweh. And the work of the triune God brings his people out of captivity and into the freedom of serving him. And who are his children? The offspring of Abraham. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. It was through the Old Testament patriarch Abraham that God chose out of paganism to be the one through whom the nations would be blessed. The reference to Abraham, again, is of no coincidence because he's writing to the Hebrews. But the testimony of Scripture reminds us that it's not the physical descendants of Abraham who will be blessed, but the spiritual descendants, those who, like Abraham, are justified by faith alone. But this verse also shows us the distinction between man and... And angels, There were angels who disobeyed God and were cast out of heaven, the chief angel being the devil, Satan himself. But God doesn't have a rescue plan, a redemption plan for the angels like he does for man. This is one of those significant reasons why we are to treasure our salvation. God has come for humanity, not for any other part of creation. The necessity of the incarnation is as the means of dealing with the punishment of death is drawn out more in verse 17. We read, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It draws out Christ's sacrifice and his role as mediator and high priest. It shows that it is not the devil whom payment for sin is made. It is to God himself. Holy God is the one who has been offended by sin. And Holy God is the one whose wrath is upon sinners. And Holy God is the one who punishes sin with eternal death. But, and here is why the gospel is such good news. But, Holy God is the one who performed the sacrifice for sin to propitiate, to turn away his own wrath. Through God the Son, through his death on the cross, the punishment for sin has been paid, such that all who believe in the Son will have life. And this new life is experienced in service to our new master, and that brings us to our final point. The incarnation is necessary to bring faithfulness to God. It is about faithfulness. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Faithfulness is first in the sense of saving faith. That is, in repenting of sin and believing in Christ, an act of the mind, of the emotions, and the will, our whole being. But in a following sense, faithfulness is the desire to live righteously, to keep loyal to God and His ways, even when temptations come. If there is no fruit of faithfulness, it is seriously questionable as to whether there is any root of faith to begin with. Think of the words of the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 1 verse 2, he says that the elect people of God have been chosen. Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ. Because Christ Jesus has walked this earth as a human, he, as a raised and glorified high priest, can empathise with us. He knows what it is like, yet he never succumbed to temptation and sin. And he... He felt that to its utmost. He resisted sin to its utmost. And so he assists us in our faithfulness to God. In verse 11, we learn that Jesus is the one who sanctifies. And again, it means to be made holy, to be set apart to God. Now, sanctification has several aspects. When we are saved by God's grace, we are made holy. Our position has been changed from being in this world to being in Christ. And when we are glorified at the return of Christ, we will be made perfect in our holiness. We won't have any more struggles with indwelling sin. What a glorious day that will be. But in between these two moments, we are called to progress in our holiness to experience a growing separation from sin and to god and the wonder of the incarnation is that we are not doing this by means of our own strength jesus himself is assisting his people in that work at the beginning of chapter 2 the writer issued a warning to the people and I think it's apt to finish with these words. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The writer of Hebrews calls us to pay close attention to the gospel, to hold firm to these truths and to not let anyone lead us astray. And why? For only in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ is there fulfilment of God's plans for humanity, fellowship between God and humanity, freedom from God's punishment and the means to live in faithfulness. To God here is the necessity of the incarnation let's pray dear father we thank you that by your grace and mercy you have provided a way of salvation through your son a way that was destined before time began and will be brought to full completion as time ends and we enter into eternity Father, we thank you that it is by your grace alone that we are saved through faith in Christ alone. We thank you that he, he alone is the way to fellowship with you because he alone is truly God and truly man. He alone can be the perfect mediator between divine and human. He alone has taken our place on the cross for our sins. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.